Oh. All right. You you're you're the naughty guy now. You had your phone ring during the podcast. Welcome back to Reason Together, the podcast for Christians who think about stuff. My name is Thomas. I'm here with my good friend Daniel as always. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time here, we're 194 episodes in uh, to this podcast. <clears throat> we are getting ever closer to our 200th, uh, which we've had some good suggestions on mm-hmm. our Patreon group uh, about uh, what we should do for that episode. And uh, I there's one I really like that I think we should attack for that. But I'm not going to spoil it. You'll just have to stick around for episode 200 whenever we mm-hmm. get to that. If you'd like to maybe see that suggestion from a listener uh, for yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash reason together and become one of the patrons. And you could even offer some suggestions like that on there and converse with us about episode topics or whatever your little heart desires. Um, <clears throat> that's patreon.com slash reason together. All right. Was, why don't we jump right in? Or yeah, did you have something else? I was, I was just going to say, I was looking on our uh, our website here, reasontogether.fm. And just to remind our listeners, we have uh, a Reason Together blog there um, for your enjoyment and your help as well. Many good articles there. And then I was checking, believe it or not, I don't look at the, um, at the uh, page often, you know, but I was seeing about our new... Um, uh, kind of product line page. I am seeing our shirt here. We can buy an RTP shirt. Um, good choice. But is mm-hmm. our page up and going as far as the other uh, product line or not quite yet uh, connected? I don't think it's quite yet ready. Okay. Okay. But it, it's coming and yeah. I believe we'll have some hats on there. Yep. And uh, I think even hoodies. Mm hmm. As well. So, yeah. so excited stay about that. Stay tuned. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's jump in then. I was just um, looking at uh, a few of these questions, but why don't you, uh, do you have one in particular you want to start with? Uh, I mean, one's as good as another, I think. Uh, I, so why don't we just go with the, um, there was the ma- one ma- that was, it's a little older. No, okay. we can get to that okay. one because that was later. Oh, oh. I want to get yep, to, yep. to this one here because this was submitted a while ago. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> at least a month, I think, from uh, our patron, Levi. Uh, so he, he asks this interesting question. Okay. Does God hate Satan and the devils? We know that God does not hate us, but he also gives us a second chance. The devils were condemned when their sin was committed, which leads me to believe he has different feelings about his angels than he does for us. Is it okay for a Christian to write a book that is not? Oh, this, is, this seems like a separate question. The second one here, let's yeah. uh, let's just deal with the first part here, and uh, maybe we can table the second part for uh, the after show or another episode. Okay. So, okay. What say you? Does God hate Satan? I'm like looking for the question. I'm like, where did you find that? I don't. <laughs> but anyway, okay. <laughs> it's right in our list. <laughs> okay. It's uh, it's called hate and books because he has oh. a question about books oh, as there well. There you go. Right. Okay. Um, does God hate Satan? Well, um, he, classic answer. What do you mean by hate? Um, <laughs> boom! I got the point. Yes, that's good. I was pointing at him because that's exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> yep. Yep. And my uh, understanding has come to the fact that we typically view hate in a very emotional sense. Uh, so love is an emotion, hate is an emotion, which isn't really accurate, um, especially when you're looking biblically at it. Um, and uh, hate, you know, love, I, I, well, I won't even go into the definition of love, but hate really having that idea of to reject. Um, and when it says, Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? Does it mean that? you know, God emotionally loathed Esau or that he chose one to one thing and he rejected the other. Um, right. And so Good. does he, in that, in that sense, does he hate Satan? Well, certainly because he has rejected him from his position. Satan thus fell from heaven yeah. uh, or fell, I should say. And, um, and, um, and so he is in a, if you will, in a state of being hated, of being rejected because he uh, yeah. apparently has no opportunity to be redeemed and restored. 
Yeah. And I would, I don't disagree with any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as is often our custom, we both say the same things different ways, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I suppose is one of the allures of, of this humble, <laughs> tiny little podcast um, is that we get some contrast. But I would add to the definition of hate, to, and, and maybe this is saying the same thing two different ways, but it's not just to reject someone or something. It is to no longer desire its best interest <laughs> at heart, um, mm-hmm. right? You you touched on the you know and defining love, right? Yep, that's um, good. The, good yeah, I would define love as you are working towards the best interest of another. Exactly. Uh huh. And and I think maybe we've talked about that before. <clears throat> so then, hate the opposite of that would be to no longer seek the best interest of the other, and. When Satan was cast down, I don't believe God seeks Satan's best interest uh, at this point, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially since we already know how the story ends. We know that in the end, Satan is is destroyed eternally uh, in the lake of fire. Um, We know that God will cast him down, that he will defeat him utterly. There's not going to be a redemption for him. So when we think about the term hate, I agree with you. It's not the emotional human hatred that we often think of. It is God rejecting something or someone to the point where he no longer has its best interest in mind. And uh, the other thing I was going to add to it is we have verses of scripture that because of our modern emotional definition of hatred, they often seem abhorrent to us, Mm -hmm. but we actually have scriptural references that teach us that God doesn't just hate the sin and love the sinner. There are actual passages of the Bible that describe him as hating the wicked, Mm -hmm. uh, that his soul actually hates the wicked. Uh, I'm thinking of Psalm 11 and verse five, his soul hates the wicked. We find that abhorrent because it's like, well, well, God hates somebody. Well, yes, but not in the emotional American term hatred that we often think of. Right. Um, and, um, he holds them in derision, uh, I would say. Uh, that's And that's from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4, mm-hmm. meaning he does not seek their best interest. Um, so anyway, all that to say, if God can demonstrate a holy hatred for the wicked, I don't think it's a reach to say he hates the embodiment of all wickedness, <laughs> Satan himself. Uh-huh. And he has condemned him already in the eternal mind of God. Mm -hmm. It's already a done deal. He's already defeated. There is no redemption for Satan. So yes, if God hates Satan and we are encouraged in scripture to be like God, I don't then think it's a reach to say we ought to hate Satan as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So all that to say, to answer Levi's question, uh, yes, I think God does hate Satan and the devils. Uh, and no, he will not get a second chance. Um, and you know, another angle on that for somebody who's uh, who's kind of struggling with that boy that you know that that concept of of hate, like uh, of of God hating somebody or us hating somebody. Um, I was thinking about um, there it is, Psalm one thirty nine, um, verse starting verse nineteen. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee, speaking of the Lord, they, the, the wicked men, speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I yeah. grieved with those that rise up against thee? So there's that sense of grief alongside of it. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. So part of that, that concept of being hated is even just, um, if I could say, a natural consequence and again, we, that's hard. It's not what we've maybe been, been prone to hear. Um, and it's even kind of built into the question. I, you know, I sense that God has different feelings about his angels than he does for us. Well, when you, yeah. when you um, position yourself against God, you have made yourself an enemy. And in some ways, you've put yourself in a position of hate. Now, we often hear that, wait, 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 but God still loves us. And he proved that. And he demonstrated it by, uh, you know, by dying for us while we were yet sinners. And this is true. And I can't, I can't necessarily give you a good um, reconciliation of those two things at the same time. But I'm just, 
uh, I'm saying like James chapter four and verse four, I think it is. Um, you, you cannot, uh, let's see, let me get the right text on it. Um, James four and verse four, he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So just as somebody might say, well, I don't hate God. Well, what you're standing in the position of an enemy of God. And mm-hmm. when you do, you're, you're saying, I stand opposed to you. You're placing yourself in a place where you are at odds with him, where he would be grieved with you. And in some sense, you might even say that you're in a position of hate. That is a place of being rejected because of the sin you choose to hang on to. Um, now, maybe you could give a better answer as to how we reconcile that, of course, with the fact that God does love sinners. God loves the world. Um so, um, but anyway, so, I so that that's not a can of worms I really want to crack open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right now, though, I do believe there is a way to reconcile it. Yeah, and let's it maybe may, not it, dive into it. But but yeah, to say that it, I, I don't it may think not it, satisfy. It's not going to satisfy everybody. And, but and I, but I don't think it discredits what we're saying here about hate. Correct. Yeah. Um, there is an example. I think of this sort of hatred, the, the, the way we're defining it, not the emotional hatred. Yeah. There is an example of this in scripture where you could, I think, I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't be unfair to say Paul hated in a certain instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm and thinking of the example. <clears throat> oh no, no, not that example though. Okay. though perhaps, perhaps that would apply. I'm thinking of uh first Corinthians 16, 22 where Paul refers to those who would pervert the gospel and teach a first gospel, mm, a false mm. gospel as being anathema maranatha. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which means let him be accursed. Accursed. Well, right? Gal- and, yeah. Galatians, you see the same, the same thing. I think it is. Um, right. But though we, but though we are an angel from heaven, Galatians one, eight, preach any other gospel unto you than that, which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's, that's pretty strong. I mean, yeah. there's, you can't, it's hard to back away from that, yeah. that terminology. Yeah. Yeah. And in first Corinthians 16, he says something like, if any man love not, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Wow. Um, yeah. So that, that is essentially to say, I no longer wish your best interest mm. and, that's hard to wrestle with when we're often taught that this salvation of lost sinners entirely depends on us and we should stop at nothing to see their soul saved. And yet here we see the apostle Paul expressing what I believe to be godly hatred um, mm. toward some folks. Interesting. Now, much like an imprecatory psalm. Yeah. And I would say the one that I mentioned earlier may not may not be a good example of it when he says, you know, I've turned over him uh, to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. Um, I'd have to look at the context again, but if you're talking about a believer in that case, you could say, I love him enough to let him eat the fruit of his own way that he might learn, you know? Yeah. The key word is learn. Yes. Uh, learning is in his best interest. So in, in a sense, then Paul is loving him enough to do what's right by this man and reject him for a time being for him to learn. Right. Church discipline Um, is exactly that basically a separation for the person's best interest and the church's Mm -hmm. best interest overall. Right. Well, that's a good question. Uh, Levi, thank you for that. Yep. Um, this one, I think we can hit this one pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, even though it's probably our newest question, uh, I think we can hit it quickly because we've actually done a podcast episode on this before. Oh, okay. And this is maybe just a slightly different angle, different angle on it. Okay. Um, so I don't think we need to, you know, beat it dead. I think we can just touch on it and go, but <clears throat> this is a question from another patron. Um, this is from James. He says, no matter your ministry philosophy is whether or not you'd hold one yourself, do you consider participating in a raffle the same as gambling, especially if it's held at a church or other ministry-related event, such as a wild game supper with a rifle raffle? I've heard arguments from both sides. One side says a raffle is the same as gambling and is therefore wrong. The other side views it more like, I'm going to give an offering to the event host anyway. They're just providing incentive and reward to have a fun part of the event or attract the lost that otherwise might not come. I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge that there's probably a third option or more out there, and it might be summed up as, quote, it depends. L-O-L, he says. I don't know. What would you say? 
Okay, I'm going to separate those two things because he's asking about a raffle in a church context. Um, yes, good. I do not think a raffle uh, in a church is appropriate because our personal, mm-hmm. you know, my personal take is that uh, the ministry of the church is funded by the church. And so yes. I'm not going to have a pancake supper. We're not going to have an auction, a car wash, whatever, um, yes. because I'm not going to have um, you know, somebody from outside my church, an unregenerate person pay for our, our mission trip necessarily. Um, uh, or, or our, yeah, for our ministry to function our right. ministry. And so if I'm going to have a rifle, uh, to attract people to this thing, the church is going to pay for the rifle. And, uh, and, and if it, you know, and if it, well, anyway, so I, I, I would detach the, um, the, uh, concept of a raffle from a church ministry. However, at a raffle, um, I think uh, a little bit of it goes to motive as to the person uh, participating in the raffle. I don't really have a problem with the raffle um, mm-hmm. because it is a money, it is, it is a fundraiser. That's the point. Um, and so if you're going to this event, you're likely, uh, you're likely somebody who um, is warm to the idea of what they're doing and what you're mm-hmm. supporting. And so if they would say, hey, would you give five bucks? Sure. You know, I support the cause and yeah, let's enter this raffle. You know, I might, I might win this prize, but I'd give the money anyway and it goes to a good cause. Or um, maybe I, I don't know if I could say I would give the money anyway, but I'm, I'm happy to have given the money to the cause if I, if I quote lose. Um, So I don't really have a problem with it that, uh, that way. But now if somebody, I guess, went in and, you know, with, with a lottery mindset that maybe if I give a few bucks, I'll, I'll win big here. Then I think that's, more like you've addressed before on certain issues, it's not so much the thing, it's the it's the hard attitude going into yeah. the thing. That would be the problem. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you said there. And in fact, I'm wondering why I should even try to answer it myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, we it actually what he asks resonates with me because when we lived in Connecticut, we were members of a rod and gun club and mm. they had raffles and I participated in one of them. Uh, I gave some money towards it, if I remember right. <clears throat> and uh, I was giving my money towards the place anyway. And mm-hmm. I liked what they were doing because in yeah. Connecticut, you know, they're always trying to take your guns away. So a place where you get to go and shoot at targets and stuff, you know, that's that's fantastic. So I gave my money to support it. And uh, if I got a raffle ticket as an aside, sure, that's that's fine. Fine yeah. good. <laughs> But I do agree with what you said that that the church should be funded by the church. Um, mm-hmm. Very well said. So. Okay. All right. What else? Uh, what else do you see there? Okay. Hmm. This one I've had on here a little while. Um, again, I don't know that we need to take long on this one. Okay. I think it's just more more of an observation that I want to throw out there to you anyway. Hmm. And I think it's a little known interpretive error scripturally that can cause us to maybe insist on certain ways of doing things that maybe aren't necessarily scripturally mandated. And boy, that that's, makes it sound really broad. I'm thinking mainly of the Apostle Paul, right? We have detailed records of his missionary journeys Mm-hmm. And the things that he said and the things that he did, the interactions he had with people. Now, I don't argue that what he wrote is inspired scripture. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> does does the, does the fact that Paul at times wrote inspired scripture, does that force the conclusion that every action he did in ministry was the right thing for him to do in that moment? Was he, was he, was he in a sense infallible? in where he traveled to, the decisions that he made, uh, the people that he either received or rejected, are we to assume that Paul was infallible just because his missionary journeys are recorded for us in the, in the New Testament? Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, in theory, I would say no. Um, I mean, we know that he is not infallible. Um, and it wouldn't uh, say that, you know, that everything he did was right because he, he himself in Romans chapter seven would tell you that I struggle so badly with this thing and the thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I, I, I don't want to yep. do, I do. So obviously there's things that he, you know, he saw these inconsistencies in his own life. 
However, I would probably argue more, more strongly towards the things that are preserved in the scripture of the things that he did uh, are likely given as an example um, mm-hmm. and as some sort of um, a model, you know, when he's stoned nearly to death and he gets up and he goes back into the city. Well, what, what, what does that tell us? What's that communicating? Was that a mistake? Um, now, I have thought in the past, um, and, I, and I think I'm rethinking my position on this, I have thought that toward the, well, it's not really the end of his ministry, but when he was on the third missionary journey and he says, you know, and prophet, you know, Agabus, I think, and yep. others are telling him, oh, really? Is that where you're going with this? I, that's where I was going with it. Yep. Okay. Well, go, well I don't want, want to steal your thunder there. Maybe go ahead. <laughs> well, 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 no, you're, you're kind of on the right track there with it. Um, I'm not really talking about his example per se. I'm just talking about maybe a subtle interpretive error that we make that to, to say that Paul got up at Lystra and went back into the city after being stoned and we preach the absolute decisiveness and necessity to never, ever give up, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yet we see in Damascus, Paul essentially runs for his life. Runs you away. know, yeah. he, mm-hmm. he sure. gets put in a basket, sent down a wall. And yeah. I think, again, he was warned. I'm thinking it was in Thessalonica where there was a big Sounds uproar. Right. That would have been a basket. Uh, no, um, no, that was the first one. That's Damascus. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but Thessalonica, I think, is where it was. Or maybe it was Ephesus. Now I can't remember. Where they're in the Grand Theater saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians, and they say, yes, don't go in there. That's it, because he made the silversmiths angry, I think. Mm. And they got angry with him, and someone warned him, don't go in there, and he took their advice, and he escaped. If if the advice at Lystra was, Paul went back in, so there you go, risk your life, never quit, never give up. Why didn't he do that at Thessalonica and Damascus? And I guess... I guess we fall into this subtle interpretive error of everything Paul did was right. And yet we see at times, you know, and the other example too, and I think this is one where you really start to see the hinge pin of this argument, this conversation is his contention with uh, Barnabas, I believe it was over John Mark Mm -hmm. and everybody, everybody tends to side with Paul instead of Barnabas. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet we don't know John Mark's reasons for leaving. And it's very possible Paul might not have understood well John Mark's reasons for leaving. And we even find out later in his epistles that he calls John Mark a profitable servant to him. So sometime mm-hmm. later, Paul changed his mind about John Mark. And we often say, well, that's because John Mark got things right and came back. Well, maybe it's that Paul acknowledged he shouldn't have responded to John Mark the way he did and changed his mind instead. The story is kind of gray, though I will say it does tend to lean more towards siding with Paul mm-hmm. because the church seemed to then uh, support Paul and Barnabas uh, as they were going. Uh, essentially, I, w- I don't want to say they sided with him. It doesn't say that, I, I, but it kind of implies that their blessing was on Paul mm-hmm. and Barnabas, mm-hmm. and we don't hear anything about John Mark. I'm just saying, is it not possible that there could have been a grave misunderstanding between Paul and John Mark and the church and so on? Uh, and yet we often conclude entire sermons about John Mark. Mm-hmm. He's got an entire, you know, he's he's often, his name is thrown around as a pejorative oftentimes. And I'm wondering, I, I don't want to end up someday in heaven meeting this man and finding out that I didn't give him a fair shake. Um, all that to say, the, the interpretive error that I think is commonly made is that Paul was always right. And just being mm-hmm. an apostle always made him right. I think it made him infallible when he was inspired and wrote scripture what he wrote was infallible, but that doesn't mean every decision he ever made was infallible. And to that, we would then come to the discussion of Agabus <clears throat> when he he essentially warns Paul. And it says in the spirit, if I remember how it says it, uh, Agabus there is being moved by the spirit of God to tell Paul, don't go down to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And he does anyway. So it's like, did Paul disobey a prophet of God moved by the spirit of God to tell him, don't go down to Jerusalem? And and, and we don't have to really debate that mm-hmm. whole mm-hmm. argument. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. 
we need to watch out for the interpretive error that everything Paul did was always, always the right thing. And yeah, I see what you're saying. And also what you said a minute, a few minutes ago, um, um, taking it a step further that one single action in his life becomes a principle for the believer. Yeah. He got up and went back into the city, therefore never ever back down from a fight or something like that. Right. Well, then you have to take, you know, scripture compared to scripture and go, well, wait, he didn't even make that a principle of his life. That just happened to be what he felt led to do at, at, in that particular scenario. But yes, I understand what you're saying as far as um, we, yeah. he wasn't immune from mistakes. So we have to, we have to be careful to consider that. And we can really weave some interesting story. We can really um, make scripture, we can weave some really interesting stories around scripture narratives. And we have to be careful that, um, that we're using language that indicates it could have been, or maybe, or it's possible or things like that, that (laughs) that put in the uncertainty uh, that is in the text because um, we don't know from silence, you know, oftentimes or sometimes what uh, what all the details are. Yeah, yeah. And and I don't even know all the implications necessarily of that. But as a hermeneutical principle, it should, I think, make people more careful. Um, I right. Mean, cause, yes. and, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's maybe the best example is the idea of him at Lystra. He, you know, preaching that, you know, never, never quit, you know, even at risking your life, never quit. But yet we have even examples of our own Lord escaping from the crowd at times. And it's mm-hmm. like, why not bring that into the sermon as a balance and right, say, exactly. yeah. well, we could we could argue that you should never quit, but we could also argue that there are times you do need to quit. And the most spiritual thing you could do is save your life and get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those things are represented in scripture. And Jesus was the infallible example. So- I'm just calling for, for, for caution that mm-hmm. we don't fall into a bad hermeneutic of assuming Paul was infallible. Okay. Um, anyway. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, so we've got enough time for one of these. Uh, you prefer I, one of these, honestly, I can't speak a whole lot too. I just think it's, uh, it's a, uh, not because it's a difficult question, but because it's a difficult question. The other one, um, uh, but you want to try, uh, we can talk about ties, uh, Matthew 18, an employee, you have a preference? Well, the ties one is the oldest one. Yep. We All could, right. We could try Let's to attack that. Um, <laughs> oh, right. man, this one really. Okay, so this this is a good one. This is a good one. But boy, the places this could lead. Um, so the question is from uh, one of our patrons from Omar. And... He asks, ties inquire. Simple question. What is the New Testament basis for churches enforcing specific dress codes on their platform? Are local churches allowed to establish any rules they consider appropriate, or are there limitations? Uh, Then he has a detailed portion of this question. Do we want to wait on that? Yeah, I'd wait on that. Let's kind of answer the broader question first. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the the New Testament basis, I mean, basically where I would land on that is just to say um, pastoral authority. There is some there is some thor- sort of authority vested in the pastor, um, and in Scripture, the you know the principle of letting everything be done decently and in order. There is a there is a method for things, and and it's okay. I think if we lay out some boundaries, and I, I'd say every church has boundaries. And somebody sets the boundaries, so it's not yeah. really a question of should there be no boundaries. You know who? You know should anyone set boundaries? No, but somebody has to, and it seems natural to me to be the pastor. Now, uh, are they allowed to establish any rules they consider appropriate? Um, you know, it's kind of one of those funny questions. Like, well, like, can you? Yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> you can do that. I mean, is it always? Yeah. And I guess his next one: Are there limitations? Well, sure. I mean, if at a certain point it um, it violates scripture, that's a problem. And at a certain point, could it be a, obstructive to edification? Yeah, sure, it could be. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, then um, then believers should approach the pastor, make an art of appeal, mm-hmm. um, 
or excuse me, exercise the art of appeal and make a godly appeal, offer, you know, um, some alternatives, something like that. But somebody has to draw the lines and there's going to be their, their rationale, their conscience is going to inform those things. And so you're naturally going to have difficulties along the way. Like, well, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. Sure. And you're going to have to decide how you, how you work with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would pretty much agree with that. Generally speaking. Um, yeah. Pastoral authority does permit the pastor in the church in accordance with due process in the church to establish some rules for doing things. The question what, is... Time out. What do you mean in accordance with due process? Well, depending on what issue you're dealing with, um, mm-hmm. some things a pastor has the authority to unilaterally decide. I think other things right. need to follow a due process. Mm-hmm. In other mm-hmm. words, they okay. have to be brought about through some sort of ratification process. Changes to the bylaws or something. But we're, talk- we're talking about um, like dress codes on the platform. Yeah. Well, or, I mean, f- don't forget that some people include dress codes in a platform in their bylaws. Uh, there are churches that do oh. that. Every, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So all that to say, I think a pastor would be wise to, if he's going to make a ruling of some kind, that he's clear with the people, what is God's rule and what is man's rule here? If he does have the authority to establish some man, man-made man rules for the church, and, and arguably he does, there's there's always going to be some sort of, hey, you know, we, we have to do this this way here. Um, there's always going to be something like that. You know, mm-hmm. you, you want people parking in the parking spots, not on the grass. You know, I think it's fair to say, don't park in the grass. Um, yeah, unless unless you need them to park in the grass, you know, but yeah. somebody has to say, somebody has to be the final word, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But when it comes to something like ties on the platform, if a pastor insists that you wear a tie on the platform, he should be clear, this is not God's rule. And there's really no principle of scripture that we're necessarily enforcing by demanding the use of a tie. But we would like it to look kind of uniform up there. That's that's kind of our rule. That's man's rule. We want to be clear, this is not God's rule. The problem is that in some cases, the two get blended together. And the yeah. pastor feels yeah. it's necessary to try and prove man's rule as if it was God's rule. Um, you know, the whole decent and in order thing often is kind of ripped away and stuck into that that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll determine what's decent and in order. And in exactly. Order. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, you could say the same thing about service times and schedules. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, we do believe in faithfulness to to church, but what is the biblical mandate for when we meet for church? Mm-hmm. Um, what if the pastor wants Monday night services, Tuesday night services, Thursday, Friday, Saturday services? Mm-hmm. What if he wants them all? Are you obligated by Hebrews 10 to be at all of those? Well, well, no, because he's made up his own rules there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there is a limit to the rules a pastor can establish. And he has to know that. And he has to say, this is my rule. This is not God's rule. The question, the question is how enforceable then is, is the pastor's rule if it's not God's rule? Mm-hmm. And the issue with the ties, for example, can run into the problem of, well, it's arbitrary. Who says that a Western style, you know, 20th and 21st century piece of cloth worn around the neck and tied into a knot is the definition of decent and in order? Well, it's completely arbitrary. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> then, you, then you can start picking details apart. Well, then bolo ties don't count, you know, and it's like everybody devolves it. it, it the whole thing becomes a mess. All that to say that um, I think I think folks ought to be careful about insisting on something like that. And if they can, they should be clear: this is not God's rule; this is man's, because um, there is no no scriptural passage at all, either stated or implied, that would insist on the wearing of a suit or a tie in church. Um. And I would, I would just push back a little bit on the word arbitrary because that means there is no reason behind it. Um, you know, typically there can be some reason, but I understand what you're saying that it's, well, it's, I it's mean, extra choice, scriptural. No, I think maybe we're misunderstanding each other there. When I mean it's arbitrary, meaning, you know, why not, you know, have a pocket full of caramels, you know, because that's decent in an order and everyone has to have six in their pocket, you know, that's arbitrarily chosen. Well, in, there's there's an arbitrary choice to a necktie. You know what I mean? 
That, why does it have to be a tie? Why can't it be everyone? Well, that's what you, I'm, that's what I'm arguing against is that there is reason behind that. Not that, and, and my church doesn't even adopt that particular one, but um, but I'm but just the saying is the, the reason is cultural, though. Yeah, it's not I might biblical. Say cultural, correct, correct. And, but it's and, not just like, uh, hey, today I want everybody's hair shaved on the side. It's not just like totally arbitrary. There is a reason to say, well, yeah. in European civilization, you know, this is finer dress and we're trying to, you know, lead the people in thinking higher <laughs> thoughts of worship and this, yeah. is, you know, so, well, so there's a line with of you, reasoning. Th- no, I, I still insist that it is arbitrary because culture changes enough that honestly it's getting to a point now where I don't think it'll be long before a tie is is always considered the finest form of dress. Um, you know, well, it, it, ch- it changes. But, it but changes. The, but the definition is determined by chance, whim, or impulse, and not by necessity, reason, or principle. So I'm just I will have to agree to disagree on that one. Um, well, well, I no, I I think we I think we're missing each other. Honestly, you, you, the pastor's choice is obviously not ar- obviously not arbitrary. The cultural definition is arbitrary. Culture, wow. culture moves and changes based on the whims and choices of various people. And the thing that becomes collectively the most liked rises to the top. And then next month, next week, next year, it'll be something different. Um, that's arbitrary. So, yeah, the pastor has a reason. Obviously, his choice is not arbitrary. Right. That's but the what I'm culture, saying. The cultural definition that a tie is the finest form of Western attire, that is what's arbitrary. That changes and is always in flux. Um, that's, so that's why I say, I don't think we're disagreeing. I think we're missing each other there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but if the decision is the pastors and he's doing it with reason, um, you know, he, he's going to set some sort of guideline. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, I guess if you feel like I can't, I can't meet that guideline, then that's where you have to approach the pastor, I think, and say, pastor, I, I, I don't understand this. I feel like it's a, uh, a limitation to ministry that wouldn't be, you know, and, and just make your case. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if it's that, you know, you're not allowed to have facial hair. Well, pastor, I work out in the cold and a beard truly helps. Okay. Uh, make your case. You know what I mean? Or, yeah. uh, or whatever. Um, well, I have one more reason that might throw a monkey wrench into it, honestly. <laughs> so... I don't think it's a reach to suggest that people who have grown up in the types of Baptist churches where it really is legitimately and utterly pharisaical Mm -hmm. with the types of rules and regulations that they have, a very oppressive regime-like church, and they do exist. I've been at them before. I've been a member of them before. Um, They do exist. It's not a mythical thing. They're out there. Um, if someone has grown up in such a background and they have spent their adult life trying to, to continue to please the Lord and they've, they've moved from place to place, they eventually set on a, on a place where like this church really seems to be sane and balanced and scriptural and, and they're wise. And then this church suddenly says, we're going to require ties. And the entire argument is from decency and in order, essentially that it's the finest form of clothing. We need to give God our best on Sundays. And you start to hear those same arguments again. I don't think it's a reach to say that that can offend the conscience and sensibilities of a person who has come from a background where all those sorts of oppressive regulations were enforced. Um, And I think at that point, you could argue that the choice to insist on ties on the platform is offensive to the conscience of another brother. Because he feels in a sense that now he's expected to live by rules he doesn't believe in. And that violates his conscience. Mm-hmm. Though that's going to be a difficult situation because uh, we've dealt with the whole conscience thing before um, where uh, – you know, who, who, who's the leader at that point, you know, now I have to govern, yeah, govern the, uh, the methodology of the church by the person's conscience. And so, yeah, out of curiosity, no, not that I want to run down this, uh, run down this trail no, a mile, you're, but you're I'm, making a fair point. Okay. Yeah. But I'm curious in that scenario, 
where the person's conscience is grieved, would you say he's the weaker brother? There's a case that could be made for that, yeah. Okay, because I don't believe that the person with the uh, with the strongest conscience is always the weaker brother. I think that's a conflation that- Wait, uh, say that again? I don't think that the person with the more sensitive conscience is always the weaker brother. I think we conflate that um, sometimes in our, in our discussion um, to, to state that the person with the lowest standards <laughs> that can tolerate the most <laughs> is, is the strongest brother. I'm like, no, that really falls apart at a certain point. It well, could that, be an ignorant no, that, brother. That, uh, that, that's more of a straw man. Uh, that's not representing the argument of those who go with the whole weaker brother, stronger brother thing. Okay. Uh, those who argue that the stronger brother, uh, th- they're not saying that the stronger brother lives however he wants and it doesn't offend his conscience. The argument is that the stronger brother does live a holy and separate life for the sake of his other brethren, but he doesn't feel that he is obligated to do so by scriptural command. He realizes that he doesn't have to live this way. In Christian liberty, he doesn't need to do this, but he does it for the sake of brethren who might stumble if he were to do otherwise. Um that so yeah to say that the stronger brother believes he can do whatever he wants no that's that's a that's not representative of the argument okay okay now back to his detailed question he says many churches have a special dress code for people on the platform that extends beyond issues of modesty um i know it is very common for churches to mandate a tie or a suit for all men on the platform but at what point does this cross into the unbiblical practice of limiting ministry opportunities to only those who will follow someone's someone else's extra biblical cultural preferences. I think we've kind of been beating around that. What yeah. is the New Testament justification for this? Uh, is an individual local church free to make whatever rules like this that they deem appropriate? What if they require circumcision? <laughs> what what if it? they require circumcision? Surely Paul would argue that, but. Surely Paul would argue against that, but how That's is that different? That's a big jump from ties from re- to circumcision. From requiring ties. Uh, where do you set the limits to such rules? Yeah. Um, so, so if I'm understanding that right, you have someone in the church who maybe they don't own ties or they've grown up in a culture where they just don't wear ties. They don't have any. And it just would be weird for them to wear one. It's just not mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. Uh, in a sense. Uh if their if their heart is to serve, are they then limited by the rule to wear the tie? Are you excluding them in a sense? And then are you making them do something that isn't by conviction for them? Is yeah. that, is that the I question? Mean, um, am, I, am I getting that right? Yeah. Basically, are you are you limiting them by mandating something? Um, and I don't know. I I guess. I'd, I'd have to talk through that more, but partly to say, I think you're limiting each other a little bit because I can, uh, I'm, I'm picturing, say, a church in D.C., in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. You know, I mean, this is a total white collar area. Um, and let's say, and uh, and so for, for somebody to go, well, look, um, I was raised in, you know, South Dakota and never, never wore a tie. And I want to, I want to read scripture on your platform. Well, I could think. I feel like you could equally say, "Well, then wear a tie." You know, I mean, uh, who's limiting who to say, "Well, mm. you're limiting my ministry opportunity by making me wear a tie." Well, I think you're kind of both limiting your opportunity because you're not well, maybe willing not to wear limiting, the tie. Maybe not limiting, but forcing. You know, who's forcing who uh-huh. is really the question. So, and I mean, when it com- when it comes to two two objects that are forcing against one another, uh, I would think the question is, you know, who has the more who has the more biblical soundness to their choice? Well, or I would say who has who has more biblical authority to make the choice? Um, so, well, the, uh, okay, you know, yeah, that, so that could devolve very quickly. I, I just, I think it's I think it's basically you're taking Bible principle here and bringing it into practice. Well, yeah, you're going to run into areas where there's disagreement, and you have to be spirit led. Um, in every scenario, every pastor, every church ought to be spirit led and say, do we need to continue to do this? Is this important enough? What are our reasons? Step back and consider what are your reasons? Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess if there can't be agreement, you have to ask, um, am I going to leave this church because I have to wear a tie or am I going to wear it? You know, you know, but probably usually it's not one little thing like that. 
you know, it's probably, uh, if, if, if it seems like a rule is over the top, there's probably a mindset that has other rules that are kind of, you know what I'm saying? It's not necessarily, I, I'm so not going to say, I'm not. So the person who has the issues with ties has issues with a bunch of other things? Well, or converse. Yeah, essentially. But I mean, you could say, you know, this pastor, he he has this strong rule here, but he's got strong rules here, 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 here. So what I'm saying is I'm bringing it to this point that I'm not going to say, well, you know what, if you can't agree on the tie, find a different church. <laughs> you know, to me, that's but too I, I strong. Guess I, I, a but part if of me sympathizes though with the non-tie guy, because it's like, you know, if the rule was to everybody wear clown noses on the platform, at a certain point, the rule is just arbitrary and stupid. And in a sense, I, I won't participate in them in that ministry because this is ridiculous. Right. But do you think that in a ministry where they made you wear clown noses, there wouldn't be something else awry too? I mean, is, are you going to have this <laughs> it, super sound ministry? So my point is that- That's an it's extreme not, example. It's, well, it's, exactly. It's, <laughs> So, so I, and I'm saying just in other words, if, if there's a rule you don't particularly care for, or, you know, your pastor says, no, I, I, I want you to, I want you to have a suit coat on if you're going to be an usher. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not going to wear a suit coat. Well, what, what am I going to tell you? Leave the church. I, I, I yeah. think we need to be more spirit led, but, but if, if that's, it's that when well, I can't, I can't serve in Sunday school because of this and they won't let me be an, uh, won't be, let me be a greeter because of this mm-hmm. and they won't let me do this because of this. And it seems like all crazy you know, stuff. Then at a certain point you have to say, do I really, can I really follow the whole philosophy and the teaching and the leadership of the church? Maybe we're just on a different page and I can minister yeah, better somewhere else. But, but. You, you can't pin it on that guy alone, though, because there is a slippery slope of its own with the notion of making a bunch of man-made rules and insisting on them. That has a slippery slope of its own. And those who make those rules are on it because they are they are what they're doing is they're priming the crowd to think there's a more holy way of looking. There's a more holy way of doing this or that. And if you don't do it, you're just not like the elite in this church. And, yeah, no, and I if, don't and agree if, with that. And I think right, you've even but, I think. I think you've even argued against the fact of slippery slope. You said, no, that's a, that's kind of a myth <laughs> that if you do this, you're on a slippery slope. Everybody's I, on a slippery slope, everybody. And that's why I say, you know, to say, well, the guy who's got a problem with the ties, he must be on a slippery slope in a sense where he's going down the hill of other rules that he's got problems with. Well, the people no, who insist on the, okay, well, maybe I misunderstood you, but my point is simply conversely that people who are making a bunch of man-made rules are creating a slippery slope of their own, so to speak, to use the terminology, mm-hmm. because people who are made of flesh will take what they're given and oftentimes do the wrong things with it. And if we create an environment of insisting on certain things and using the Bible to prove it, when the Bible really hasn't said anything about it, well, you're creating a bunch of people who will end up Pharisees. And I think that's, you know I mean? that's the key to what you're saying is using the Bible to prove it. If you just say, look, I just, uh, for, for the purposes of our church, we just feel, we believe this is best in the spirit of the principle of this Bible passage. This is the rules <laughs> we've come up with. We don't say that. Uh, we don't say. In this, uh, in uh, the, uh, give me, give me space here. Okay. We don't say that Bible says you have to wear ties, but somebody has to make the decision. We, we want a certain you know, something presented from our platform and somebody has the right to make a rule. This is going to be a rule. So yeah, we're in agreement on that. that, Yeah. That's not a slippery slope. And I wasn't, I was not indicating that a guy is on a slippery slope if he doesn't like the tie. I was simply saying what, where I was trying to lead up to was saying, I'm not going to say if if a guy says I have one problem with the platform attire of our church, I'm not going to counsel him. You need to find another church. What I'm saying is that if, if you see that is it in other places of the ministry that it's just sort of typical of a general mindset throughout the church that really sort of betrays its philosophy or its leadership. Mm-hmm. And you say, you know what, I, I think me and the leadership just don't see things the same yeah. in a lot of areas. But then there's something you said though that I have to, there's something you said though, that I think this is where kind of the problem lo- often lies is to say that we are insisting on these ties because it is in the spirit and principle of this Bible passage. Mm-hmm. A- am I representing what you said correctly? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. yeah. See, yeah. see, there. I I would push back and say there is no biblical principle that either in spirit or in letter addresses the issue of ties whatsoever. That essentially, when someone says we have the Bible, we have what it clearly says, and then we have our action, which is to wear ties over here. That there is some mystical Bible in between those things that teaches ties are it. Um. Well, no, I think at that point you've no. run a you've run a foul of principle to insist on a tie. No, I just think I just think if you could say that the the principle is orderliness, 
And mm-hmm. I, as the leader, happen to think that this looks orderly. I'm not saying yeah. it's Bible, but I have to make the decision. And so to me, that's kind of how I'm defining orderliness, and that's what I want. So to mm-hmm. me, I'm, I'm, I'm catering to what you're saying, saying separate it from it's not what the Bible says, but somebody has to make the decision. And right. so, yeah. And um, what you said is important. You said, it's my opinion. I've decided that that's what I think is orderly. As long right. as you're honest about that's what you decided. It's not what the Bible teaches, either right. in spirit or in letter. It's, it's just a decision I've made, right? Um, that you're not basing it on a particular scriptural passage. If, if you're clear, this is not God's rule, this is my rule. Um, I think that's fair and honest. Right. But what's governing my rule is a, <laughs> is a, is a principle. So I, I, again, I don't, to say, I, I, again, I didn't just arbitrarily choose that, hey, you know what? I'm the pastor and on our platform, I want, you know, red sneakers. No, mm-hmm. I, I was saying, I was saying, you know, as a church and as a church leadership, we want to present ourselves a certain way as an example and so applying that, of course, this is where we get into the weeds, you know, people by application disagree. Well, here's my application of that. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Yeah. An application and, like that doesn't necessarily carry scriptural authority. Right. Um, you know, we've right. got places in the United States of America where if you showed up in a suit and tie, it would be kind of strange. But sure. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be kind of strange. Oh, yeah. And it's not so, to say that it can be transplanted and and be right, but in different locations, the application may look different. Um, and that's that's okay. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. And 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 I so going back to that, what do you do about it? Well, you just make an appeal to the pastor. You pray about it, you you, yeah. you be spirit led. Um, but at a certain point, um, you know, not everybody can just step up, well, I think, well, I think, well, I think somebody's got to make the mm-hmm. decision. And, yeah. um, and, and so the, the, you know, the guy who's, who's, you know, visibly leading here makes the decision. And if you don't like it, then, you know, kind of got two choices, I guess, but yeah. Um, yeah, good. We're at our time <laughs> and we need to transition are. into the after show and you've already, uh, got an idea for a question. It's going to be quite a, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, all right. It's good. Do we so, want to hey, tease it? Do you want to tease Ooh, it at all? Sure, sure. Go um, ahead. <laughs> Which yeah. one are you talking about? <laughs> um, I believe you said we're talking about, um, because this really is an interesting topic. Is it okay for a Christian to write a book that has nothing to do with God and may even explain ideas of how a different world was created or um, or uh, include things? I mean, later in his question, he deals with magic and dragons and sorcery and things like that. Um, what's, uh, you know, um, at what point can we call an allegory, you know, what's, at what point is something an allegory? At what point is it just fiction? And thus some of its elements are neutral. Are they ever neutral? You know, interesting, uh, subject. So we're going to move that way, but listeners, Hey, if you've got a thought on what we've been talking about or something totally different, we've been working today, last episode, uh, other episodes, wholly on listener feedback. We're, we're, we're taking questions that you've asked and we're starting to bat them around. And we love that. We love to, to, to receive your questions. So send them our way, reason together podcast at gmail.com. Um, maybe an encouragement, a, a thought, a, a perspective we haven't even seen what we're talking about. Maybe you're seeing, and uh, we ask you to join the conversation in that way. Reason together podcast at gmail.com. All right. Thank you for being with us on this episode. We are encouraging balance, developing perspective, And connecting faith to practice, this is Reason Together.